previously on Thanks Therapy. Tell me about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I promise I'll only do that twice an episode. Do it one one more time this episode. Thanks Therapy! Thanks Therapy! Okay, um, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one of those things that you'll learn about in psychology, but it's very much a um, in within the practice of counselling and therapy and things like that, mm-hmm. because it's a really great way to understand our needs. Okay, so Abraham Maslow was um, an American psychologist. He was actually a psychology professor and he's most famous for developing Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> promise that's the last time. Um, but also he advocated viewing people and their um, positive attributes rather than just seeing them as a bag of symptoms. I'm in doing inverted <laughs> air commas. A bag of symptoms. Well, I think that's lovely. I think what he was trying to say is, you know, people are more than their problems. And yeah. Bag of symptoms is just such an evocative phrase. I, I love it. That's how I feel quite a lot of the time. Well, I think we all do from time to time, but um, positive psychology would have been very much of the view of everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses and let's try and focus on a strengths-based approach. Cool. Um, so it's really well known in psychology and it's also used in counselling and therapy and it's a really helpful visual representation of basic and psychological needs. And it's presented as a pyramid. Mm-hmm. For anybody who doesn't know what this looks like, we'll put it in the, the show notes and on Instagram for this episode. Mm-hmm. Whenever this comes out, we will put it the image up. Um, so there are five tiers, usually represented in different colours. And the bottom two tiers represent your basic needs, your physiological needs, essentially. And the next two tiers are psychological needs. And the top tier is self-actualization, which we will come back to in a minute. Cool. So the bottom of the pyramid is your basic needs, food, water, warmth, rest and safety. Some of those we have talked about in our discussion of self-care, I think. Yes. Um, Mostly rest. Yes. Um, The next level psychological needs include friendship and social interaction. Again, we sort of talked about that. Love. Um, And then above that are what are called prestige needs. And that's essentially the need to feel good about yourself have self-esteem, feel accomplished. Okay, cool. And then before we talk about the highest tier, um, there is an implication that without fulfilling the basic needs, so food and warmth and safety, that it's more difficult to fulfill your psychological needs and your higher order needs. Yeah. And I think that's an important point about privilege. And it, you know, it comes up a lot when you're thinking about people who are in war and poverty and crisis, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and severe disadvantage, you know, when you're in a survival state, you need to get your basic needs met. Um, and that's why these are referred to as deficiency needs as well, because they arise due to deprivation. So if you're experiencing hunger, that's because you're deprived of food. If you're experiencing, you know, freezing cold or um, exhaustion, that's mm-hmm. because you're deprived of rest or warmth. So... But it's not impossible to reach the higher tier needs when you're missing some of your, when you're in states of deprivation and Mm -hmm. some of those basic needs. It just makes it more difficult. It's more challenging. And I do think it's worth just always mentioning in the conversation that inequality has meant that lots of people in our society, um, people of colour, for example, have had to achieve things with their with greater difficulties and some of their basic needs not being met in the way yeah. their need for safety their need for you know all those kind of things not being met to the same extent as other people who were more privileged to have those advantages and i just think it's always worth bringing that into the conversation so self actualization then yeah i love self actualization i yeah i like I think the it needs a jingle all of its own <laughs> So basically, it means fulfilling your potential. So that's simply what it means. 
Um, so part of your filling potential, your potential might be creative endeavors, it might be getting your dream job, it might be um, getting a qualification or retraining or having a family or achieving something like climbing Everest, something you've uh, you had an ambition to do. Yeah. Um, and part of self-actualization is also having peak experiences. So peak experiences are where you... Um, well, they can be like, you know, going to a festival it can be yeah. a peak experience. It can be peak social experience. It can be peak in terms of, um, the, the things that you see and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And also something like climbing Everest or winning a race or, um, I mean, for me, I'm trying, it's hard because I'm thinking of myself. So like. What, that time you climbed Everest? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> These um, are quite grand examples. I know, I'm trying, I'm trying to, think to think of, of lesser of... examples because I, I remember having a lot of peak experiences at one stage and um, they were much less grand than, than climbing Everest. They were sort of, um, well, I mean, a really good gig, like having a really good gig. Yeah, or for me, we had a heat wave recently mm. And my, my peak experiences during the heat wave were like being able to go out and walk around by myself in summer clothes. Mm. Cause that's something that I find difficult due to body image issues. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't sound like a huge deal, but that's what comes to mind when you talk about the peak experiences. Cause I was like, fuck, I can do this. Yeah. I mean, you and were it feels really brilliant. Yes. And, and you were in brilliant form as well. And, but also I thought what I thought you were going to say was swimming in the sea. <gasps> oh my God. Yes. That time that you swam in the sea, you said it was transcendent. I had a euphoric experience. <laughs> like I talked about this in therapy last week because oh, we had, I had a little break from therapy. My therapist went on holiday mm -hmm. and we were going to do Zoom. And then I thought like, well, why don't we just see what it's like for me to not come to therapy for like a month, which is quite a big break. Um, and I, she said, you know, how have you been? And I was like, I had a euphoric sea swimming experience that I need to tell you about. Um, we all went to the beach as a family. It was a beautiful, bright, sunny day. I had my wetsuit, but there was a moment when I was in the sea with all the kids. So I was kind of like trying to be a responsible adult and make sure they didn't like drown, et cetera. Sure. But they were all kind of taking care of themselves and the waves were like lifting me up off the sand. Mm -hmm. And I was like feeling compelled to twirl and dance in the sea Aww. in the waves and let them kind of bounce me around. And That's it was lovely. like, I mean, a spiritual fulfillment experience of which that I haven't had many in my life mm. that haven't been like, you know chemically assisted. Mm. Um, so it was very significant, and I think I'm still. I think that the high has sustained me yeah. through kind of, you know, the heat waves over, I've gone back to work. There's a certain amount of drudgery has returned to life mm. after the peak of summer, but I, can, I still have the sensation. I'm doing a lot of arm raising. She is, yeah. I wish you could see. I know. <laughs> it does feel like it was a bit of a spiritual experience for you as well. It was incredible. I guess that's just nature. Yeah. Um, I have had experiences like that in the sea as well and I do think you know we've talked about sea swimming before now it is it is really restorative thing it's beautiful for sure um so yes the peak experiences there can obviously there's a wide range of them in terms of what they would be and I think you know it when you're having it essentially yeah um yeah, yeah. another interesting point about the hierarchy of needs is as you, your basic needs are met, so hunger, for example, your motivation decreases. So with the lower level needs, mm -hmm. the more you achieve the need, the more your motivation decreases because you don't, the need is not there motivating yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. However, in the higher order needs, as you achieve the need. As um, in like, is the higher order need like, like self-actualization? Self okay. So the more you achieve self-actualization, the more your motivation increases for self-actualization mm, so the more cool. growth you achieve the more your motivation incre increases to to grow i do think it's cool and um it's sort of what i was talking about a few episodes ago when i was saying that um 
I always feel really positive and engaged when there's lots of creative stuff going on. Yeah. Or not just creative stuff, but projects. So if I've got several interesting projects, so I the job interview that I went for that I mentioned, I got the job. Woo! So I've got the job is starting tomorrow. So I've got a new um, research assistant post starting tomorrow. We we love doing this podcast. It's really interesting. We get to talk about stuff we're interested in. Um, and that's when I feel that I'm in sort of self-actualization mode. So yeah. when I'm producing things, when I'm creating and when I'm engaging in intellectual content. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, my motivation only increases for it. Oh. The only thing is, is that because of my other personality traits that I have, <laughs> that we've also talked about where I can't stop myself doing too many things. Or Yeah. No, I can is... stop myself, but I tend to do things until I'm drained. You do a lot of drained, things. And yeah, I do a lot of I things. I say so you do a lot of stuff. I have to be careful that I don't ruin it for myself by doing too many things and exhausting myself. But I am, I'm getting better at that as, as time goes on. So that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Hans. Thanks very much. That was interesting. No problem. Um, so, you know, worrying about self-actualization or things like that is the type of thing. And I know that we've, this is bringing us back to this point of, um, it's a privilege of the unburdened, isn't it? That you can, that you can worry about that. Although while you were talking about that, when you were speaking about, um, when those basic needs are not met, such as like food, same safety, warmth, um, rest, all those basic ones. Mm-hmm. I it made me think about um that book I was telling you about that I'm reading that you have at the moment. Oh, um, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Vic- Search for Meaning. Victor E. Frankel. He was a doctor. I actually think he might still be alive. He's very old now. Really? Yeah. So he was a doctor, and he. Um, and a psychiatrist. And a psychiatrist. Was he a psychiatrist? Yeah. He was before even the war. He was a psychiatrist because he referred to himself as a specialist. Yeah. And that's right. I think his specialism was psychiatry. So he was, um, imprisoned in Auschwitz mm-hmm. during the Second World War and survived. Yeah. And he then wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is about his experience in the concentration camps and he speaks about his experiences and his kind of just basic quest for survival. Mm-hmm. But the, the, I guess the main point of the book is about, um, the huge, tremendous human capacity for, um, self actualization in those extreme circumstances. Yes. And he credits, um, that kind of the spiritual aspect of things as, the reason he survived mm-hmm. basically because like the level of deprivation that he is describing is mind-blowing it is mind-blowing i've just read the first half of this book so isn't it incredible yeah um so this is hannah's book and she left it at her grandparents house and they were and well, my, my mum was very confused as to why someone would leave a book behind them because that's the type of thing she gets confused about. And I didn't realise, I was like, oh fuck, I've lost my book. Um, and so I started reading it and took it away and read it on the plane. And so, as you say, what he's essentially talking about is that the avoidance of despair can be done even in circumstances where you would think that it would be impossible to avoid despair. Yes. They were given... A little squid, like a playing card sized piece of bread mm-hmm. and watery soup a day to eat. And they essentially just began to starve. Yes. And, and they did to not starve. have shoes. No. They did not have, have clothes. Shoes. They did not have adequate place to sleep. They did not have adequate rest. Um, but he speaks about the, the, I guess the moments that enabled him to survive mm-hmm. are he just have you got to the bit where he describes walking along with another prisoner and they're kind of supporting each other i'm not um, sure it's like you know break of dawn they're being walked to the place where they will do their day's work which is like pickaxing um frozen ground yes. for no reason uh-huh. for um, eight or 12 hours yeah, yeah while being like verbally abused and and hit mm-hmm. if they stop um he is walking along with this with his fellow prisoner and they tell each other the names of their wives that's right and then he he kind of has a, a sort of t- 
telepathic conversation with his wife mm-hmm. um, and he says it spurs him on mm-hmm. to kind of just keep taking another step, keep taking another step. And he can tell that the man he's supporting is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another section in which he talks about, because he's written a manuscript before he was put into this camp. He, he had written a manuscript um, and it's taken off him and he's lost it and he, he feels despair over the fact that he's not going to be able to publish his life's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually he decides that he has to just remember it. Mm-hmm. So he starts finding tiny scraps, scratching key points into little tiny pieces of paper that he's able to find, hiding them. Mm-hmm. Um, so his will to survive is kind of driven by that um I mean it's in the title man's quest man's search for meaning he finds meaning and um motivation to survive in those things even when all of his other basic needs are not not only not being met but they're he's being decimated as a human beyond imaginable how how their needs are not being met but yes so the man's search for meaning part um, he, his belief, his whole hypothesis is that psychological distress comes from a lack of meaning. So mm-hmm. he, he's existential psychotherapy. Yeah. That's his branch of psychotherapy. And so it's, it's all about, he had purpose. Mm-hmm. His purpose was this manuscript that had existed before he was, went into a concentration camp and his desire to see that, that come to fruition. In fact, yeah. it, um, and his you know, love for his wife only. and his desire to to see her again. I know. It's very moving. Actually, my therapist recommended that I read that because I was struggling brilliant. with an existential being, you know, like, why? what's the point of all of this sort of thing? And she quite aptly identified that I do need, I need a significant amount of meaning to be clear to me in order to bother meeting my, my own, like, basic needs. I agree and I think we all do and I think that that's something <clears throat> we hadn't talked about that in terms of types of therapy because we we stuck to mainly the core three and then a few sort of you know side side therapies but um existential therapy is good if you are really feeling lost in your life you mm. feel like you have a lack of direction or you don't know what to do and very often what people would do nowadays I think is they go to a life coach yeah for that yeah that's interesting and again I have nothing against life coach I happen to know somebody who's extremely amazing woman and has trained as a life coach and I'm sure what she does with people is is great mm-hmm. um but it's a different thing you know, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't see it as a substitute for therapy because yeah, it's not sometimes the they will have some counselling training, but um, often it won't be sufficient psychological therapeutic training to allow them to really give you access to the things that are, are unseen for you mm-hmm. to allow you to uncover what is maybe behind some of those things. Really, if you just feel like you don't know what you're going to do with your career or you're very dissatisfied with your life or you, you know, should I change career or not, then a life coach could be the thing for you. But also you could try and seek out some existential therapy. And generally, if you go to an experienced enough um, psychotherapist, they will be able to use those techniques and, and guide you in that direction. If you go to them saying, I've got some existential issues here about, you know, what the point of my life is going to be and what I need to do and things like that. Yeah. Most psychotherapists will will take you down that path for sure. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I definitely, I, looking back, I think that's fo- like been the basis of quite a lot of the stuff that I've done in therapy. Mm. But I didn't have the self-presence to be like, I'm having existential issues. <laughs> Can you help me with them? I think she just listened to what I was saying. It was like you've got existential issues. Do you want to read this book? And do you want to look at these things? And we'll do this, which is great. That's why she's, you know, yeah, of that's course. why we love therapy so much. Yes. Thanks therapy. Because that's been very successful. But I, I, yeah, no, I, I suppose I should say that, um, you're not required to know what your particular crisis <laughs> is in order to seek out help. Just, you know, that would probably shorten the, uh, the whole process yeah. significantly, but I don't think anyone, has the 
has their own kind of problems figured out and mm. they, they you don't generally arrive and be like, um, my problem is this. Could you help me with it? You kind of just turn up and go, uh, I've got problems and I don't really necessarily know what they are. Yes. Could you help me with them? Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Um, and, you know, um, I'm a bit worried that this chair is making a lot of noise. We are in a different location today. I um, haven't noticed your chair making noise. Hannah's on a leathery, well, fake leather sofa, but yes. she's remaining very still. I'm on like a computer chair thing and I'm a bit worried that there's a creaky noise sometimes with it. I haven't but noticed. We're recording in the studio because uh, the children are in the house and would be incapable of not interrupting <laughs> me for the length of time that we've been going. Um, this has been a bit of a longer episode and I do have a few other things that I wanted to talk about. Um, so I think we might split it into two. What yeah. do you think about that, Hannah? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I never run out of things to say. No, we don't seem to. Um, I wanted to talk about whenever it's so whenever we talked about, OK, we're going to do about sort of self-management techniques, self-help, what you do if you're um, trying to manage things. And so I went through that. OK, what would I do? So what I would do is make sure all the basic needs are being met, yep. make sure I'm taking care of myself, taking care of my health. I'm getting enough sleep. Um, that I'm talking to people, um, that I'm connecting, that I'm getting time by myself and um, make sure I'm not doing too many things. I don't have too many things on my plate, which I almost most often do. Yes. You're um, a busy mother of two. Yes. And a professional. Um, and then I I thought about it a bit more and I thought, well, you know, what would I have given to clients as as techniques that they could have managed some of their symptoms when they went home. Mm-hmm. So this is actually where CBT I I feel really shines, Hannah. Mm-hmm. She's raising her eyebrows again <laughs> because um, the anxiety management techniques and resources that I want to talk about they all originate in CBT. Um, and then some of the other self help techniques are more are developed by my you know, psychological colleagues, mm-hmm. but, um, so self-help anxiety management techniques, there's a range of them that often, uh, any kind of integrative therapist, um, or a brief solution therapist or a CBT therapist might suggest that you try when you go home from the therapy session at any time. And so there's one really simple technique that I told, I would say, maybe 60% of the clients that I saw because everybody has a little bit of anxiety, don't they? Yeah, it's and weird not to, honestly. Yeah, but especially if you're in counselling or you're in therapy often, that is one of the things that comes up. It's one of the most common things. Um, so this is a proven technique, proven to be really effective and it's um, I know it as the postponement technique. So um, what you do is basically you allow yourself to worry but only for 15 minutes twice a day so say what? at 9 30 yeah so at 9 30 a.m you get to worry for 15 minutes intensely if you wish <laughs> but only for 15 minutes and then you must stop and if you oh. worry at any point during the day you have to say no i can worry at 5 30 and i can't worry now i'll worry about it at 5 30 so you put it off until 5 30 and then you um, can worry intensely at 5.30 if you want for 15 minutes. Describe my to face right now. She's my looking reaction. very surprised. This is a really long-lived technique and it has a lot of variations. So, for example, when one of my children was experiencing anxiety whenever he was younger, we bought a book called What to Do When You Worry Too Much, which is for children. Mm-hmm. And it has it's basically the CBT techniques translated into um, ways in which children can think about it. And the post postponement technique in that book involves you lock the worries in a treasure chest it might not be a treasure chest but a chest right yeah um so anytime you have a worry in the day you you say i'm going to lock that away in the chest i'll look at it when it's worry time right right the the point of this is is when you get to worry time 9 30 and 5 30 whatever most people will not be able to worry intensely for 15 minutes straight Right. They won't be able to do it. They'll forget what it was they were worried about. They'll forget what the, you know, all of those things. Um, and so it 
overall reduces the amount of worry that you have. Um, the th- you should never do it before bed. So you, whatever times you pick, don't pick, you know, 9.30. I'm sure p- people listening to this will have experienced worries at night, like when you lie down and everything's quiet, you yeah, don't yeah. have anything to think about. And you suddenly go, hmm, I'm very <coughs> concerned about uh, the climate change issue. Yes. That happens to me quite a lot. Just so you know, that's entirely normal. It's just what happens. Yes. Um And... Uh, we want to avoid that because it's very unpleasant. I have a thing where I worry about people falling down the stairs, me oh, falling really? down the stairs or other people falling down the stairs. Oh. And and then I think that I'm worried about walking down the stairs. And then whenever I come to actually walk on the stairs, I've forgotten that I was worried about the stairs at all. Um, so this, this technique I saw, I heard the original writer of this um, advised described it as intense meta-worrying or something like that. And they suggested that you sit somewhere uncomfortable, like the rim of an upturned metal bucket. What? Yeah. To do your worrying? To try to worry. And the point is you will be forced to stop after three minutes because it's just so uncomfortable. I I gotta say, all of this, I am finding this troubling. You're finding it troubling? I'm finding a lot of this strange is it because of the um having a worry time is that what's no the thing that i am having an issue with is uh-huh. the locking it in a chest bit sure okay. because all of my kind of my own personal philosophy for dealing with emotions is the opposite of locking things in a chest sure i i, <laughs> I see what you're saying but i don't want you to confuse the locking it in a chest with suppressing things that you need to deal with. Yes. Those are two different things. That's not what you're doing. This technique is for people who, for example, my child was worried about um, everything being poisonous. Right. Was the salt on the ground poisonous? Was Aww. Would he get poisoned if he used a pen? Was, you know, was, was everything poisonous? Okay. And this anxiety had come up because he'd had a medical t- related trauma. Aww. And he just became anxious and that's where it fixated. So right. you'll find people will fixate on different things. That's where phobias come from. But underlying it is an anxiety about themselves being vulnerable mm-hmm. to, to harm. Um, and if you're having uncontrolled worries all the time, so you're worrying throughout the day all the time, if you put those worries off to a time that you've allocated for worrying, usually... Most people, when they get to that time, they will find that they've forgotten what it was they were worrying about. Okay. In, in the so middle like of the, the day or the whatever it is. The power of it has been diminished. The power of it has that. been diminished because you've postponed it, you've put it off. Right. And, you know, that's what we're, most of us are doing that all the time without actively going, I'm putting it off to 5.30 when it's worry time. Yeah, You yeah. know, we're mostly putting off our worries. I'll think about that later. Or we're too distracted to think about them and that's how we cope. But it's not saying if you're really worried about something, a particular thing, and you can't let it go, it's not saying lock it in a chest and repress it forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are two different things for sure. Yeah, yeah, I strongly disagree with that if that was what it was about. That's interesting. I I mean, I think I've said enough about my misgivings around CBT techniques yeah no I don't I I, I think it's just not for I me I just keep trying to sell it to you because well it's just that all all of these things are, are proven to work and have an effect however they're not designed to deal with the underlying issue yeah. sometimes the underlying issue will get better on its own like for example with with my child they had a traumatic experience they became worried they ex, ex, um they showed signs of anxiety in the way that children do. So very often children, if they start washing their hands excessively, right, they're washing their hands all the time, children will get worried about germs um, and substances and things like that. When they just start to get the information about germs and substances, they go, what? Right. <laughs> There's minute microscopic creatures everywhere that make you sick. You can see this why that would insane. be troubling. Um, so if they have a tendency towards anxiety, that might be how it's expressed. Another one is eating their clothes. 
Aww. sucking their clothes, sucking their jumpers, which seems contradictory if they're worried about germs or poisons. But yeah, yeah. there you go. That's one thing. And, you know, the thing is, is that there's nothing that they need. They don't need to, like, uncover unconscious issues. Right. We know what yeah. happened. This is their reaction to it. It will resolve itself. But what we want to do is help them use techniques that will allow them to cope with what they're feeling and resolve these things until this this over excitation of their nervous system calms down again essentially um and another way which is really good with anxiety and children to do that is psychoeducation so that is basically explaining what anxiety is and what it's for and what's happening in your body and mind you know and that's useful for all ages um, and I would say that most of our listeners would have the knowledge that um, anxiety, the anxiety response is directed by our amygdala, very old and central part of your brain and mm. by your nervous system. And is it's a system of, you know, signal, like receiving input and responding to it and reacting and passing messages around the body. So therefore, if we feel we're under threat, um you know, we have to react to that. Mm-hmm. We're we're trying to re- our bodies are reacting, that, and that's, um, and that's where that's our anxiety response. And so, a lot of techniques for children. There's like little cartoon strips and animated features and things. There's a website, which essentially is trying to teach them. Look, this is this is your nor- body's normal response to threat, which has got a bit out of control. Yeah. And is over responding to something that actually is you, you consciously know isn't, shouldn't be scary. Like walking into school shouldn't cause you to have a panic attack, but some part of the signal in your body has got the wrong message. Yeah. And it, and repeatedly is telling you that this is a threat. And certainly you should explore the reasons why that is, but often it can be really helpful to have the information that this is why your body's behaving. Hmm. Did you not know about the psychoeducation? No. Bit. Well, yeah, so psychoeducation is is good for for you know, all all mental health things like in terms of depression, people saying, you know, we were talking about it the other day like the emotional intelligence stuff. Yeah, I guess we didn't have that. That is a new thing. Um, oh yeah, those are quite new. Those are new, new it's resources great. for kids. Because yeah. like I'm learning those as an adult and, mm. and have done so through therapy, which is expensive. So if those had been taught in school, that would oh. have been super helpful. I actually just read a thing today, which was um, about how, I mean, there's so many really great things. Actually, it's because of us being on Twitter. So thanks therapy being on Twitter has, I've been able to connect with lots of different um, organizations on Twitter that are doing different things. And one of them is talking about how, um, children need mental health education in schools yeah so mental health science mm-hmm. so talking about how our brains work how our emotions work how you know in school like as a part of your education in the way you might talk about how your body works mm. and how your you know reproductive system works or something like that so that you have that information yeah could you imagine if you had never had the period talk right yeah and, and then, then you suddenly... got your period you would think you were dying oh my god yeah Fuck. So when you don't have, nobody ever tells you, people get depression, mm-hmm. people get anxiety. It can be really difficult. And it's like, you know, when you have a physical illness, it's like that before your mind. Um, a, a, a guy called Dr. Alan Cooklin, who I was at a conference with, who's one of the um, parental mental health head on show guys is one of the big you know people in the parental mental health world um he ran a program called kids time and um he used the image to explain to children what mental illness was he said everybody has a filter in their brain and that means that so for example if you imagine you're trying to do a sum and somebody's talking in this ear and somebody else is getting you to try and, you know, make a piece of toast and you've got too many things coming into your brain. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to concentrate on one thing in order to do your maths problem. And 
how you do that, how you filter out all the other things that you could be thinking is that there's this filter in your brain. And whenever you have a mental illness, your filter doesn't work very well. So it allows too many things to come through Hmm. and then you become overwhelmed. So you're not, you're not filtering out all the noise. You're not filtering out the negative thoughts. You're not filtering out the anxious thoughts. You're allowing them in to overwhelm you. And that's how, that's an image that he uses to explain to children what mental illness is when their parent has a mental illness. Just while we're on the subject of anxiety, I need to get this out of my head, okay? Yes. Because this is something I find so interesting. Okay, so everybody knows about the fight or flight thing. We talk about that regularly. Just in case people don't know about that, explain briefly what that is. Okay. So from an evolutionary perspective, we would have been at risk of literally being eaten by something. Yes, right? which so, we are no longer at risk of generally. No. Um, but we do still have that part of our brain, that primitive part of our brain, which is designed to protect us. So it's designed to protect you from threat. And how it does that is by filling your body full of adrenaline so that you can run away yes. from the threat. Mm-hmm. That's the basics of it. So people will know that as the fight or flight response. So you're filled with adrenaline so that you can fight off the predator or you can run away from the predator. Yes. Um, but we now talk about the four Fs. So, yes. Yes. So, and I love fight. this so much. So there's fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Fawn. Fawn is the most interesting one to me because it's the one that I learned about most recently yes Um, well that's the one I want to talk about because that's let's talk about the fawn response that's definitely what I do so I am very prone to fawn Mm -hmm. um and I do this when I encounter men who I perceive as potentially threatening oh and I didn't always recognize this um and then after I recognized it I was firstly only critical of myself for what I saw as pandering to aggressive men Uh uh-huh And then I realized that what I was doing was something that I had learned to do to protect myself over many, many years. So when I encountered a man who I felt could be a threat, my protective strategy told me to fawn, to placate him, to not provoke him. And once I recognized this, it, it made a lot of sense and after I stopped beating myself up about it. Yes, that's, (laughs) um, I, I actually just felt sad then. It made me sad because I think it's a testament to fear I have felt at different times in my life that yeah. has made me think this is a protective action. That's good. I think that's good to have that. Um, I was talking to someone about this recently. Um, when you think back on a, on a past behavior that you've displayed or like a past, um, iteration of your current personality Mm -hmm. and you feel like a sadness for them yeah um it has been explained to me in therapy as being quite healthy Mm -hmm. because it shows um like compassion for yourself which is crucial to any kind of like healing of any kind um like you can't really heal out of a place of like well that's fucking stupid you should stop (laughs) doing that don't deal with your problems that way that's idiotic which is what i used to do and be Mm -hmm. like "Mm, what the fuck um so you're looking back and being like, I wish I could help that person. I wish I could go back and explain why that's not the way. Yeah. Or I wish I could go back and ex- explain to myself, you know, you don't need to behave this way. Here's an alternative or here's why you're doing this mm-hmm. or any number of things. Um, but the, the, the thing that you're saying about feeling sad for your past fawn behavior, mm-hmm. I am currently having that because. <laughs> So I've worked in customer service for a good number of years and you do, because you're dealing with the general public, Yeah, you do meet a certain amount of interesting behaviour from other people that you just have to kind of deal with in a professional way. And there have been times when I've failed hugely at that, which I'm sure I've told (laughs) you about. But my, the reason that I'm thinking about this is because it's mostly to do with um, aggressive men Mm -hmm. who I've had to deal with. And unexpectedly to me I have realized that my uh response to that is fight yes. and I never thought that it would be it's interesting yeah isn't no. that weird because I'm generally not no you're not an a fighty person, person at all but there is something triggering in those scenarios <laughs> <laughs> that makes me become extremely verbally aggressive yeah uh and I kind of 
um, I look back on that with a certain amount of shame and regret. No, I love it though. Um, it's great. Because it is, there's, there's some examples that I can think of that I'm like, well, you know, that was disproportionate what I said. <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about, you know, serving coffee and I've suddenly had a, a quite an, an aggressive altercation with a male customer and they've left. Mm. But it's interesting because you, I guess that speaks to the unpredictability of those responses. Mm -hmm. It's like something takes over and then afterwards you're kind of going, what way did I behave there? Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Why did I have that response? It's because it's not, you're not really, those responses are not necessarily characteristic of your overall behavior when Mm -hmm. you're in a settled, um, like a settled state, you know. Yeah, I mean, on reflection, I think we would all behave differently often, you know, than we than we tend to. And I think the it's it's left me with some regret because I felt I haven't always defended myself or I haven't always expressed myself. And it's it has come up recently because what I've realised is that if I if I am in confrontation, so I'm I am really not. I'm not interested in conflict or confrontation. I mean, I know nobody is really, but... I think I might be. (laughs) (laughs) I'm worried about that. (laughs) Well, I'm kind of allergic to it. I cannot deal with it at all. Yeah. So if I enter into an aggressive situation with somebody or somebody's being aggressive towards me, what I will tend to do is I will use a lot of I statements. I, this, I I will often be conciliatory, apologetic. I'll say, I'm sorry that you felt like that. I really didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Mm. I was doing this thing and this thing because of this and this and this. Um, I won't apologize for myself necessarily or take back things that I believe are true. But I also will not call out their behavior often. Yeah. So if they have done some things that are really, really obviously would be classified as bad across. So say, for example, invading somebody else's privacy or lying. Mm-hmm. OK. Those are two examples that I'm literally thinking of, which is why I was able to call them to memory. So I don't have a <laughs> list of things that people could do that are morally wrong or yeah, anything yeah, like that. But you've got from those are just experience. two examples I yeah. have from recently. So say somebody has has obviously lied yeah. and and I'm in an interaction with them where they're telling me they're being aggressive towards me and trying to have an argument. I'm not engaging in the argument, so I won't point out. The thing is, the problem is, is that you lied. Yeah, you know? because then it becomes a back and forth. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which so, is not interesting. And I'm not interested in the back and forth arguments at all, but the problem is, is then that I haven't addressed their behaviour. I haven't I haven't addressed the problematic thing. Yeah. And guess you're just trying to operate out of a place of just self defence and like mm-hmm. self preservation. Yeah. Which is good. Um it like is those good, are necessary things. They are necessary and it's de- it is something I'm I'm gonna work on. I'm looking forward to getting back to therapy as well, Hannah. So yeah. we're on the it's second the week of August and um I'm gonna go back on the start of September and there have been some things that have, you know, happened this summer that have, I'll, I'll be keen to go back and reflect on. Mm. Um, oh, speaking of, I'm doing EMDR next week. Oh, next week? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I, as I said, we had a break and weirdly because of the pandemic, I couldn't do any, we couldn't do any EMDR sex- sessions because it requires a physical proximity. Yeah. Which is so strange to think about that. Yeah. That that was kind of a, a by effect. Yeah. Well, um, you can't do sand tray work because you need, you need to a touch physical everything. sand tray yeah. for a start. <laughs> you, yeah, there's lo- I think there's definitely things that you can't do via Zoom, like, you know. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you probably there probably are ways, but um, we just hadn't, we had just kind of let it fall by the wayside. Um, and I don't know, there's something in my personality that makes me turn up to therapy and be like, right. So I've been really chill and happy all summer. So what I'd like to do is really get into some of the more murky stuff. I want to get into this really, you know, sadness. Um, cause I've been taking it easy. You know, I've had like an emotional holiday from this. Yeah. So I, I went in with that, um, attitude last week and my therapist was like, you know, you don't have to like really fucking slog your guts out. Like you can just turn up and say, I'm feeling good at the minute. Let's talk about that. And I was mm. like, oh, interesting. I want to do AMDR next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to go next week and do that. And, um, oh no, on this week actually, um, because I love to 
uh, really go for it. Yeah, no, you do. And I, but I think that that is part of our, you know, our expectations of how do we know we're doing it? And I think yeah. for you, you, you know, you feel like it has to be work, you know, you want it to yeah. be kind of hard work, you know, whereas I want it to I be like really that. quite floaty. I want to be kind of going in saying, hmm, I've been thinking about this thing and, <laughs> you know. I want to go but. in, I want to go in and have like the mental equivalent of like, a boxing match mm. or something. This Not is interesting. Say. I think people could analyze this. Yeah. You know, and, and speaking of analyzing things, right? So, um, we don't have a problem for today. Oh, yeah. I forgot now, about this. It, we're sort of, it's because, partly because we knew it was going to be long because we had a lot of stuff to talk about and we knew it was probably going to be two. Yeah. But should we transition to a dream? And I can tell you. Should we transition well, to a dream? I've been having oh, yeah. some really weird dreams. Okay. Oh my god, great! So I, I, and there've been the sort of ones where it's like um, an episode of a TV show that, like, if you get up to go to the toilet, you're like, "Well, I'm going to go back and lie down again to see how this plays out." Oh right, okay. So one of them was I worked for a, um, like, I presume it was like a solicitors or. Um, you know, a family law agency, mm-hmm. right? And I was the mediator. Okay. Okay. And I helped separating couples resolve their disputes. Did you? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I love this. Um, I love so this. this man, and it was what I, I know I'll tell you what I find interesting about it afterwards, but so this man was separating from his partner mm-hmm. and, um, he said, I need you to come down to this office. We've got this problem that we really, really need to resolve. Said this to you? He said it to me, but I came with like two other people who right. were like vague presences because I was doing everything, sorting it all out. And, all. Uh-huh. and he said, right, I've got this paperwork. I need you to look at this paperwork, try and get a meeting with their office. And so I was speaking to them and I feel like we were sort of in the office and I was saying to the secretary, can we, can we see her? Can we see her? She said, no, she's, she's busy. And I was saying, is she busy on Monday at three o'clock? Is she busy on <laughs> Tuesday at 10 o'clock? Is she busy on like not taking no for an answer sort right. of thing? So then they, they gave us the meeting at some point. And so that was a bit of a win. And we sat down to look at the paperwork and he said, now you'll see what we're fighting for the the um the subject of our argument is a burn doodle called wheat. Oh. So it was their dog and it had a picture of this beautiful burn doodle oh. dog. Wheat. Called wheat. <laughs> Where he got wheat from. And he was like, like a dark colour or something. I, yeah, I don't know. I just I it was written down and there's a picture of the dog. And Aww. I went, okay, I see what this is. Okay. So important Serious that business. he gets the, gets the dog, right? Um, and yeah, so, but I like woke up in the middle of it. I was like, oh, I've, I've got to get back and find out what happens with this whole thing. What do you think? What does that mean to you? All of that? Well, I mean, there have been some situations in other people's lives, which I wouldn't want to share anything about for their own privacy that are to do with separation. Yeah, I yeah. have experience of separation myself and, and there's lots of experiences of separation in the family. Um, I worked with separation in my clinical practice because I was working with parents. So that came up a lot. And my view was always to encourage empathy for the other person. So very often when people separate, they don't have any empathy for the other person. So they, their dispute is based on being adversarial and being against the other person all the time. And so I would just try and increase the empathy for the other person. Mm. Um, but I find it interesting that I was, um, supporting this man. Yeah. Um, only because like, obviously I supported many men and many fathers and their separations and things like that, but well, just professionally. Only yeah, I just, I don't know. I just thought, oh, it's a man that I'm, that I'm, I've taken the, his side for, and, and I seem to be wanting to try and get the dog for him. Yes. Like, rather than split custody of the dog, which is the right thing to do, really. Well, I think it's interesting that the dog is called Wheat. Do you? Yes, because <laughs> Wheat makes bread. Yeah. And bread is like 
there's a lot of associations there with like putting bread on the table, the breadwinner, money, yeah, that's money, what I thought you were going to say, parental roles, family roles, masculine roles. Mm-hmm. So you're supporting him in getting that. Yeah, well, she was. She was high. Dogs? Well, I think some people do split custody of dogs, but I think that ultimately, you d- somebody decides who's going to take the dog. Really, well, you can't That's... explain custody to a dog. No, so they'll just be like, "What the fuck is going on? I'm so stressed all the time. I'm gonna." pee on the rug I know there was a situation I did know about where this poor guy had been he was very attached to his dog and when he separated from his partner they didn't have any kids and she used the dog as the way people often use children which is as a as a pawn in the in the middle of the conflict so withholding contact you'll never see your dog again that type of thing fucking hell so don't be at that everyone I don't know I mean I think I tend to not deeply analyze dreams. I tend to just go, okay, some some things about separation and um, disagreements and things were in my head. But the character that I was playing in this dream was quite unlike myself. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true because you are quite often a mediator. Oh, sure. Yes. No. I mean... I did consider training as a mediator at one point as well. I do. That's true. Yeah. You'd be very good at that. Um, but maybe there's something in there about you wanting to break out of the mediator role. Because that sounds like it was quite stressful. Yeah, it was. And uh, that's funny that you should say that, actually, because I literally feel <laughs> that I'd like to stop being a mediator <laughs> between conflicts at certain times. You know, I think, uh, you know... It's all very well if you're doing it professionally, but once it enters into your private life, your yeah. personal life, sorry, I should say, um, you, then you end up in personal conflict with people because people yes. think you're taking sides or because you are taking sides, you know, and it's exhausting, really. And, you know, I, I've sort of alluded to the fact that we've had a difficult year in our family. Um, and, you know, the, the reason why I was taking self-care last night is because I do feel sometimes really worn down by everything that's happened over the last two years. The pandemic, my brother dying, you mm. know, all of that stuff. And that wasn't really, the, those weren't the first difficulties that we had yeah, been going through absolutely. in our family. You know? Yeah, it's been quite a tumultuous time. It has been a really difficult time. Um, and our family is quite, we're, we're you know, genetically quite emotional and things are close to the surface. Yeah. I think for everyone, like when I spend time around other people's families, I'm like, everyone's so reserved. Really polite. And nobody is shouting. Nobody <laughs> is talking at length about a personal problem. And they're all just chatting about like stuff they've seen on like TV or the news or whatever. And I don't really understand that. Mm. Um, like, not that there's a correct way no. to interact with your family, but. I think it is thrown into contrast how we are as a family um, whenever I spend time around sort of more emotionally regulated families. Is mm. that unfair to say? Well, no, I mean, I think the thing is, is that when you, we, we, everything is on the surface or there's a lot of stuff on the surface with us. Yeah. Um, and all of us are doing that at once, often on different topic areas. You know? <laughs> People have different often problems going while on. trying to collaboratively prepare a meal, yeah. which is its own source of stress. Um, and a p- perfect example of this was, oh God, was that at last night? No, two nights ago. So my brother's over. Um, we went up for dinner. Me and Hannah went up for dinner. So it was just the kids had had a few nights of coming up for dinner. And so they stayed at home with Marty. And me and Hannah went up for dinner. We had spaghetti and it was really when delicious. When you say went up for dinner, we should clarify that oh. to your parents' house, my yeah. grandparents' house. And the reason we say go, we went up is because they live on top of a big massive hill. Yeah. And that is the collective house that we all go to. So yeah, we don't like tend to have dinner at my house. HQ. We don't tend to have dinner at my sister's house. We go all go to my parents' house. So, yes. Um, we were up there and I was having a few glasses of wine. So, and it, it ended up being quite late. So I was supposed to bring dinner home for Marty. And I thought I better phone him just to let him know that we are coming. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had, I'd send him a message saying, you know, maybe you should eat because this might be ready quite late because it was, it was, it like was on the table yeah. quite late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I phoned him, I was sitting at the table 
And for some unknown reason, I had an expectation that everybody would be quiet when I was on the phone. Yeah. And the literal opposite thing happened. <laughs> so I was talking to him on the phone and everybody started to try and make a joke at the same time. We're talking about, I'm talking all about dental surgery. We're talking about teeth. I was like, put it on speaker, put it on speaker. I was like, no, Mary, it's fine. We've gone full loudin. We've gone full loudin. It was very intense and I feel bad intense. sometimes when that happens for Well, because the other person people. on the other end of the line is not in on the joke at all they're just or, like what the fuck are oh you all shouting God, for it's so chaotic up there um can i read you one of my dreams oh yeah it's, please do. it's not uh as interest well no it probably is um i bet you it's more interesting because i couldn't even really that was like two nights ago that dream i couldn't even really remember it so properly. this is from a while ago this is from the 6th of july so when i was speaking about dream journaling uh-huh. i have them all in my phone oh okay so i've got years and years and years worth of dreams in mm-hmm. here Okay. Um, and they become more consistent around the March 2020 mark, oh, which right, was when okay. my dream life went into overdrive. So this is July this year? Yes. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago. Um, content warning. Some of this is quite graphic. Okay. Uh, physically. Okay. There's blood and gore. Okay. So if you're not into that, skip a couple of minutes. So was at a big house party in my grandparents' house. I was hosting it but didn't know anyone there and was worried about people wrecking the house. People started pushing each other down the stairs and the first person to fall had his jaw broken off. His entire head fell into slices, fanned out everywhere like sliced ham and people started screaming. Then more people fell on top of him and it was a big pile of body parts. There was also movie sound effects whenever more body parts would land. So it was super loud, bones crunching and blood spraying from big fat veins. Then I realised we were actually being filmed and it was like a real life Truman Show situation and we were the unknowing subjects, but the gore was real and the cameras had to keep rolling. (laughs) I walked up to the cameramen who were concealed in the walls and said, do something to stop the deaths. But they had small photo IDs stitched into their cheeks, showing a photo of their hands shaking another hand. Saw maybe five of these and there there was one hand the same in all of them. When I asked whose hand they'd had to shake, they pointed on the logo of their cameras, which was a cartoon of Boris Johnson. Eventually I was able to leave and hid inside a neighbour's garage to escape all the body parts which were beginning to flow out into the street. Hmm. What do you think that dream's about, Emma? Oh my goodness. I woke up from that and was like come on like that is a bit on the nose i know could you be less obvious subconscious apparently not um so you told you shared that dream with me Did already I? yeah oh, and God, i didn't really i remember. loved the imagery of the man's head like fanning apart yeah it was yeah. disgusting kind of like you know when you see like old 70s cookbooks yeah and there's like a ham jelly <laughs> made oh, <laughs> yeah they were really into gross food in the 70s <laughs> it was fucking gross like aspic yeah it looked like that but there was like comedy movie sound effects like mm. you know when you watch like an old kung fu movie and the punches are dubbed in mm. and they're like really juicy punches it was that kind of stuff well i think that was probably to lower the intensity for you otherwise it would have been a pure nightmare you know terrifying because yeah, that people were literally nightmare. dying and falling apart yeah. but you were viewing it in a kind of a detached way mm-hmm. and i do think that that does echo the pandemic because it's impossible you can only really dip in to the truth of the you know the deaths that yeah. are happening. You have to um, carefully control your dose. You have to, yeah, that. you can only really dip into that before you become overwhelmed. You know, I do think it's important for all of us to recognise that it's, it's real people's lives and it's affecting real people. But we, it's it's obvious when you just say it as numbers, it's hard for you to maintain that attitude yes. all the time. So I think your brain was doing that by... Having these comedy sound effects. Yeah. So there was horror. There was absolute there was, horror, but you were sort of detached from it going. There's kind of an intensive body horror theme through a lot of my dreams that is then, like you say, kind of mitigated by um, some comedy factor mm. in the dreams. And I think it's my subconscious being like, you do need to think about this issue that you've got, but also do you want it to be silly just so that you don't wake up and be unable to go about your day because yeah. of the nightmare you've just had? Yeah. Um, and I I kind of appreciate that uh, little skill from my subconscious. Um, so we've just been doing this for two hours now. Really? Yeah. Uh, Let's go and eat some food. What should we do now? 
um, sign off. I think we should sign off. Yeah, we'll we'll cut this in two, and um, we'll see what you make of it. Do keep um, giving us a shout, letting us know what you like, what you don't like. Um, if you were really insulted by the absence of a problem today, I mean, you know what to do about it. Right, send in your problems. An email at thankstherapy at gmail.com. Anonymize it. Um, we will not share your name or any details. No. And we won't share any details that we think are particularly personal either, you know. So, yeah. Um, we would love that. And please. That would be so helpful to us because. Get involved. I can't just keep asking my friends for their problems because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to become a little bit invasive at this stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks, Emma. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Thanks therapy. therapy. We did eat a lot before we started this. Yeah, and I came the coffee. Like <laughs> Go well, for it. So I'll start again. Okay. Marty, we're going to have to cut that bit out. Marty.